This show is part of the Electric Agora network of podcasts. Dr. Amy Bentley, how are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm good. I'm super excited to talk to you today. Um, I'll introduce the show first and then we'll proceed. So you're listening to the, to the Sophia podcast on electricagora.com and the Electric Agora podcast network. I'm the host for today, Kevin Curry Knight. I'm a teaching associate professor at East Carolina University's College of Education, and I'll let Dr. Bentley introduce herself. Hi, everyone. I'm Amy Bentley. I'm a professor of food studies in the Department of Nutrition and Food Studies at New York University. I'm a cultural historian by training, focusing on food in the United States in the mostly 20th century. Yeah, that's that's a very, very... Uh, I, I definitely want to talk to you about why you got into specifically food history, because mm-hmm. um, it really is a, a really fascinating area. And we're going to talk about really two things today. What drew me to your work was uh, an appearance you made in an Atlantic article that talked about the origination of the idea of three meals a day that we think of as kind of natural, but like most of the things we think of as natural, there's a history here. And then a book that you did before that called Inventing Baby Food. Before we do that, just by way of um, small talk, I was thinking about kind of, you know, small talk questions that we could ask. And seeing as you're a food historian, um, I guess the, the question I'll ask you is if there was a food or type of food that you could completely write out of history, what food would that oh, be? Oh, man. Who? Uh... Write out, like eliminate? Yeah, just eliminate. We want to eliminate all historical memory of this food in hopes that people will just forget <laughs> that it ever existed. You know, I don't know if I can do that because I'm, I'm, um, I might definitely have feelings about which foods are better and which foods are worse for people, like nutritionally and, yeah, yeah. and environmentally. But um, as a cultural historian, as you know, <laughs> all foods have cultural import and all have, um, histories and locations and meanings to people and uh, all meanings are not either bad or good. And so, uh, you know, what came to my mind immediately was maybe Kool-Aid, which has (laughs) (laughs) no nutritional value, uh, full of sugar, damaging to one's teeth, you know, uh, empty calories as they say, but also it has for, for, uh, you know, Baby boomers like myself, people born in the mid 20th century, you know, that was one of our childhood drinks with along with popsicles and, um, you know, other other sugary drinks and beverage and food items that were full of artificial colors and flavors. And so I don't know. I don't know that I would eliminate something. I'll think about yeah. that. And if something yeah. comes to mind, I'll let you know. Yeah, it's it's funny because I was uh, watching a while ago. I don't know if you've seen uh, the documentary called I think it's In Search of General Sao or oh, Chasing yeah. General Sao. Did you see that? Love that. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it kind of goes to your point. It's once you trace a particular food back, you realize that other foods were instrumental in yeah. creating it. So not for any spoilers on the film, but I didn't realize, for instance, there was this theory that the idea of like McDonald's chicken nuggets mm. came from tempura. Mm chicken in China, if Mm -hmm. I remember right. And Mm -hmm. without that, you wouldn't have like the Americanized Mm -hmm. version of General Sal's. That was, Mm -hmm. that just blew my mind. That's a fantastic documentary. I love that documentary. So good. I I guess for me, it would have to be French food. I'm sorry, Mm -hmm. but I I just, I just, there's nothing redeeming about French food, especially (laughs) given, given people's 
admiration for it. It's just so bland and average, and I just I can't understand it. Interesting. Well, I would respond to you and say, well, do you mean oat French food, like the the glamorized food that that is served in the restaurants in Paris, or regional French food, the right, bouillabaisse right. and you know hearty vegetable dishes that are in regional parts of France. So. I guess that's true because I do. There's a, a recipe for provincial French dip that I mm. I really do like, but um, yeah, I don't. I, I you know way more of the history than I do. I can't make those distinctions. It's um, a fun. I, I it's a fun can't. exercise, though. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So why don't we talk first um, just about kind of why you got into? Uh, it, it sounds like you were kind of doing cultural history first and then specialized in area of food. Because if I was going to characterize your work, for those who don't know it, it really, I mean, you are about food history, the, mm-hmm. the inventing baby food, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But in so telling those stories, mm-hmm. you're talking about cultural history because the food, it, it seems like the message in the work that I've read of yours is that food has a ripple effect mm-hmm. outward mm-hmm. in the culture. Culture affects food, food affects culture. Mm-hmm. So how how did you get into focusing on the history of food as a sub area? I was in grad school uh, in the mid to late 80s in an, what's called an American Civilization program at the University of Pennsylvania, American cultural history, basically. Hmm. And I was looking for a dissertation topic, and I was interested in World War II as a period and gender as an analytical lens. So hmm. I was mucking around in the uh, National Archives in Washington, D.C., as one does, And I remembered my mother's stories about um, victory gardens and saving fat in a can on the back of the Mm. stove. Uh, uh, She was a child in Oakland, California, and her mother, who had grown up on a farm, uh, had the best victory garden in the neighborhood because she actually knew what she was doing and growing some vegetables. And so I remembered these stories, and I I asked the archivist, archivist, I said, do you have anything on victory gardens? And he said, oh, I don't know. Let me go back and look. A few minutes later, came rolling out two great big carts full of boxes of materials. He said, yeah, we actually do. And I don't know if anybody's looked at these, which, of course, is like, you know, bells and whistles going off for wow. a grad student in in history. And I, I started delving into the, the materials and found them fascinating. And the project, which was my dissertation, evolved from there to be a cultural history of food rationing in World War II with attention paid to women, since women are the primary food procurers and providers and preparers. Um, a lot right. of the wartime propaganda was aimed at women. And then, so I analyzed that, the messages to women about saving food, about avoiding black markets and rationing. And then um, I also st- looked at women's responses to those messages and their actual practices, how they pushed back or how they Mm. adhered. And um, that dissertation became my first book. I loved the um, food aspect so much. I thought, wait a minute, I want to do this more than, you know, the other. And there was some food history, but not a lot. More was in anthropology and sociology. I just got more and more interested into the cultural Mm. meanings and uses of food. And from there, um, caught the wave of this thing that was emerging called food history, um, both in academia and in the larger public conversation, just 
the place of food and how it has implications with regard to nutrition, labor, politics, uh, the environment, identity. Um, I eventually joined the department at NYU and have had a ball ever since studying, teaching, writing, thinking about uh, the meanings and messages of food. Yeah. And you're in the, what, de, what department specifically? Cause you're not in the history department. No. You're in, mm-hmm. Right. It's called nutrition and food studies. And what yeah. it is, is it's an evolved home economics department. Mm. So most universities had home economics departments, basically where, where women could get a college education. Uh, and because they were not allowed in many other departments early on, and it was a safe, um, major for women in the early 20th century, mid 20th century. But of course, as um, women's movement emerged and um, options evolved and broadened, home economics departments fell out of favor and morphed into different things. And and at NYU, it became nutrition and food management, which then in the mid 1990s became food studies. Uh, My my colleague and mentor, Marianne Nessel, created this idea. Well, maybe New York is a food city. We've got so many, we're the city of immigrants. We're a city of restaurants. Let's see if there's a way we can study food academically and see if anybody's interested. And lo and behold, there were a lot of people that were interested. And we've, we started out focusing on identity and consumption and since then have emerged to really study the, uh, the food system in general from production, processing, marketing, consumption, also waste and its effect mm. on the environment. So it's it's really an amazing program. It's interesting that you mentioned um, the, the relation of food to identity mm-hmm. because about maybe two and a half, three years ago, primarily for health reasons, I became vegan. And um, it's it's always been a source of interest and maybe a little consternation for me how much veganism is part of people's identities Mm -hmm. but then but then again i can also understand it because when you you know to the cultural element when you go to people's houses and you have a meal with them and you're vegan it sort of does become yeah an issue a a point of negotiation sometimes yeah Yeah. Um, absolutely it's like a lot it's it it has a very strong identity attached to it like like uh, a a religious identity that involved food restrictions or rules um and so it, it 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 really disrupts the the norms the the norms of American food culture, and so yeah. uh, it, people may embrace the notoriety or may want to avoid it, but uh, nevertheless, it's there. And um, and actually, people the, their studies have shown that people feel more comfortable thinking about plant based diets rather than oh. the word vegan diets because vegan has such a strong militant association mm-hmm. with it for yeah. a lot of people. But plant-based does not. Plant-based is something that people can get around, um, get their wrap their heads around, and, and also feels like a more neutral term. Yeah, well, I guess the word vegan does generally also mean that you're opposed to the use of animal products yes. in other areas. Yeah. So, like, they talk about vegan purses, yes. and you talk about yes. vegan shoes. Yes. And, of course, to me, I usually think of it as, as a, a diet yeah. type, and that's always a strange yeah. Term to hear a vegan purse. Yeah, um, <laughs> exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. But you're right. You're exactly right. vegan. In, in, encompasses this larger ethos, um, and plant based is is maybe has a more smaller uh, a smaller definition. Yeah. 
why don't we get into why I came across your work? And I'm, I'm definitely glad I did. Um, there was an article recently in the Atlantic that you were interviewed for by Amanda Mull called there's no real reason to eat three meals a day. And I'll try to link to the article um, in the podcast mm -hmm. notes for those who want to see it. And it's basically about the idea that the pandemic is sort of disrupting the three meals a day rule. And I'm, I've, it sounds like there are probably people who kind of feel guilty about that. Like I'm actually just lightly snacking throughout the day, whatever. Mm -hmm. So I want to read the paragraph that you're quoted in that really caught my attention. And I do what I always do when I see someone's name who seemed like they maybe have a book on the subject or whatever. I looked for your name and that's where I came across your book. But let me read this paragraph in the article and then I'd love to hear your elaboration on it. So Mull writes, Splintering the three meals a day norm might at first feel unnatural, but in the long arc of human history, that eating schedule is most extremely recent and born ent almost entirely of social convention. According to Amy Bentley, a food historian at NYU, eating three meals a day is not something we do because of nutritional science or natural human inclination. Instead, it's a consequence of industrialization, which formalized the workday and drew much of the population away from home or reg on a regular basis. Pre-industrial America was more rural and agrarian, and people worked during the daylight hours, pausing mid-morning and later in the afternoon. Quote, it was more like a two-meal kind of schedule that was based on outdoor physical labor and farm labor, and those meals tended to be quite big, end quote, Bentley told me. So why don't we uh, elaborate on that? There's a lot to unpack there. So first of all, um, when did we develop this idea of three meals a day, and how did industrialization play a part in that? Mm -hmm. First of all, I want to start out by warning that I am not an expert in this area. Mm -hmm. uh, I am a food historian, but um, I, I don't claim to have uh, absolute knowledge on all topics. So I'll do my academic throat clearing, but maybe, but yeah. yes, but formally. Uh, I think uh, a codified three meals a day um, pattern is more uh, the result of industrialization um, and so to talk about that, I, it helps to, to, to go back in time and talk about what a pre-industrial meal pattern or food consumption might look like. And um, to go back earlier to the medieval period, um, there's some really interesting research that shows that um, this idea of day and night is more fluid than we think. You know, we always, wow. today there's this idea that we work and we uh, are awake during the day and we are asleep at night. Well, this earlier mm. research says, well, that's not just quite so true. And that a lot of it is dictated by darkness, but that darkness, of course, you know, in the, in, in, in the dead of winter in Northern Europe can start at four o'clock in the afternoon and um, remain until eight o'clock in the morning. So that's a lot of hours to be asleep. We don't yeah. really sleep that long. And we probably need to be up working and doing other things for um, more than just those daylight hours. And so researchers have found that this quote unquote nighttime period was very, very fluid in some ways that people would often go to bed when it got dark, but at some point they would wake up in the middle of the night and have a meal or have sex or sing songs, like have this waking period mm. and then go back to sleep again until um, the, the, the earlier morning where they would need to get up and, 
tend to animals or start um, field work or other kinds of maybe they work they lived in a city and they had to do some um, you know menial labor and so the first thing that it wasn't so absolute as we think it is now is day and night and so that idea of having a meal in the middle of the night again, contradicts with this idea of the three meals a day that we have grown up to think about as normals, breakfast, lunch, dinner. So fast forward a little bit closer to our time period. Um, in, in a rural agricultural setting, your clock is really um, more about da- daylight hours and having to get up and do work, tending to animals, milking cows, starting field work, um, and, and you may get up and just go right out and do that. You may not stop to have a meal. Um, and you may come back in after a few hours of labor to have a heartier meal. That's, that's, um, going to be fuller and have more calories than say a bowl of cereal. In fact, this idea of a bowl of cereal didn't really even exist until the late 19th century. A, A morning meal looked a lot like an evening meal. Um, meat, if you could get it, potatoes, um, heavy food, nourishing food, food that was going to sustain you and satisfy you and tended to be savory, um, savory in profile, as opposed to a sweet breakfast cereal, you know, and then you would work for a while, you may come back in and you may have a, a late afternoon heavier meal as well. You know, our body, we do need you know, ideally, we we need to eat several times a day. You know, having one meal a day, you could you could subsist on that if it were substantial enough. But right. we respond to um, to food and drink at intervals. Our body is revived by it, and we're energized by that. Those shots of of um, liquid and solids and the nutrients they provide. So, um, so agricultural labor in part tended to determine the patterns of food. Um, you know, there may have been snacks. I'm not an expert in this. You may have taken something with you out into the fields. Um, you may have not been able to come back for your meal. So you needed to take something with you. Um, and so, um, you know, the patterns and the types of meal tended to evolve, um, that way. Then when we get to the industrial period of industrialization, time starts to be standardized. Uh, Train schedules, for instance, if a train is going to go from Boston to Chicago, um, it needs to know when it's going to, people need to know when it's going to arrive in the different train schedules. Every region can't have their own time willy nilly. Well, just after sundown, just before sunrise. So you have the standardization of times and time zones that are in part driven by railroad schedules and factories as they emerge want a labor force that starts and stops when they need them. Uh, if machinery is going to be started, for instance, there needs to be workers there. And so there are standardized hours for work, which then drive the rest of human life and existence. So if you know you're going to get up and you have to be at a factory at eight o'clock, um, and you might not be able to get off um, for a break until a certain amount of time, then you're going to want to eat something before you leave. And that thing probably can't be an elaborate, heavy dinner, heavy meal. It needs to be something quicker and lighter. And so that 
morning meal emerges into what we call breakfast. And that tends to be quicker foods. And then with industrialization, you have the rise and, and um, Kellogg and the other uh, health food gurus, you have the emergence of breakfast cereal, which is dried baked grains that are then cooked or mm. uh, moistened with milk. And then, you know, the, the, the midday meal shifts from being a heavier cooked thing we that we think of as dinner now to again a lighter quicker meal often cold um that might be eaten on your break and you might not have enough time to go back home so you have to bring again bring your food with you or if the the factory has a canteen then you purchase food from them but again it tends it it, it tends to be what we think of as lunch food so sandwiches um convenience foods foods that are portable and then that shifts the thing of the thing called dinner to a later period, and that hot meal that was around the midday or afterward shifts to a a, a, a later period where you finally can go home and have that larger um, warm dinner. Right. So so it sounds like the common theme here is is time. Mm -hmm. uh, it used to be that the first meal a day was a fairly elaborate meal. It, it would have taken a lot of time to prepare mm -hmm. it. Frankly, once we standardized time and people started working out out of the house uh, at, at jobs, mm -hmm. um, I guess the, the idea was you didn't really have time to prepare that sort of meal mm -hmm. anymore. Mm -hmm. So you would eat something that sounds like it's less filling, mm -hmm. right? Like mm -hmm. cereal is, mm -hmm. is certainly less filling mm -hmm. than a ham steak mm -hmm. or, or whatever mm -hmm. it was you would mm -hmm. eat. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's 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 very interesting. Yeah. So our so yeah. our when we eat and what we eat is shaped by. Uh, standardization of time by work life and by um, say the separation of home and workplace. And do you do we do you know if workplaces from the get go, like factories, et cetera, started accommodating work uh, like um, lunch breaks into their schedule because they knew that that was going to happen or. Um, do you know anything about the history there? Did, I, did workers have to convince the factories, like, no, we, we need a work break? Mm. Well, work I break? think they realized that they had to provide a work break, but that's what a lot of early labor history and labor laws and um, uh, workers' rights initiatives yeah. were involved in. Like, a, let's, uh, you know, the work week was originally six day a week, and um, workers advocated and struck for a five-day work week. Um, breaks, standardized breaks, um, negotiating with the, the um, manufacturers, what those breaks yeah. would look like. And so that, those things evolved and in part were the um, result of workers' initiatives. Yeah. When I read the article you were quoted in, one of the things that, that it got me thinking about and then, you know, um, got me to your work is the importance in some ways of once once you start to have this this idea of lunch and you have lunch at work because you work during the day work in some way becomes organized at least in part around lunch mm -hmm. so you have these cues mm -hmm. around you so i'm a college professor and i noticed that we schedule classes generally speaking so that there's a time for lunch mm -hmm. we don't you schedule a lot of classes for 12 and 1230 because the, that's usually when students would be eating mm -hmm, lunch. Mm -hmm. um, 
And you have a schedule that's usually formalized around that. If you're at a factory, you probably have a formal lunch break. Mm -hmm. There's a, a certain time mm -hmm. during the day. Mm -hmm. I remember when I worked retail, you had a lunch break every day mm -hmm. and, and mm -hmm. you knew when that was, yeah. okay, my lunch breaks at 1230. Um, and I guess when we're working from home now, part of the, the gist of the article, it seems like, is that we don't really have the same cues because we're all working from home right now. So a lot of times <laughs> we're kind of making up our own schedule and that seems like it plays a little bit of havoc. Yeah. Yes, uh, absolutely. Well. I, I would also add into that this idea of coffee breaks. And those those were built into the factory day, too. And they tended to be shorter, one in the midday, one in the afternoon. In Europe or in England and Ireland, yeah. they're called 11Zs and <laughs> tea time. You know, so those have become even more codified than um, a snack or coffee break that we think of as those those in-between meal little reprieves. Um, but you're yeah. right. Now that, you know, I literally get up uh, from my bed in one room and go into another room. And I'm lucky to have two rooms where I, you know, have a workspace and a and a living space. You know, that's that's not a lot of commuting time there. And <laughs> I am not spending time outside involved with other people in my workspace, uh, my office or uh, elsewhere. Of course, I'm lucky. There are plenty, plenty of people who are still in there public spaces, risking health uh, with the COVID pandemic. Yeah. But um, that creates, that that almost, that softens certainly and almost eliminates this structure that led to the three meals a day. I wonder, I wonder if you have your crystal ball on you because um, I'm going to ask it, it, any predictions. I mean, certainly if the idea of three meals a day came about for his, contingent historical mm -hmm. reasons, like the time schedules, certainly it can be uncreated or recreated mm -hmm. or something different could emerge. Mm -hmm. um, I, I don't know, because I don't know if people are going to go back to work as much as they did before. Mm -hmm. I know that, for instance, uh, my father has been working in travel insurance and they had an office in New York. They've done everything virtually and they've decided to basically close the office mm -hmm. uh, permanently. I, I, I think a lot of businesses are doing mm -hmm a modified schedule. Yeah. I mean, with the close of the traditional idea that we all go to work and that's what we do. Mm -hmm. I wonder if the three meal a day structure is going to go through a, a significant mm -hmm. change. I, I agree with you, but I would also say that it, it already was in, in transition. Mm. Um, we, uh, we were already a country of snackers. Uh, yeah. snacking was very ubiquitous and snacking is encouraged by the food industry. Um, I mean, their job is to create products and advertise them in enticing ways to make us want them. And they had already been doing that. Uh, Americans already mm -hmm. snacked in significant amounts. And such a good job they do. They do such a good such job. Such a good job. Such a good job. <laughs> and in fact, think about, you know, um, there was a campaign for a while that Taco Bell um, had for the quote unquote fourth meal. So in other mm. words, like we're yeah. open until midnight. So at 11 o'clock, why don't you have that fourth meal? Um, and then a company like insomnia cookies, which is practically begging you to order them at two o'clock in the morning. Um, again, breaking that idea about these codified three meals. Um, so we have a lot of social cues, a lot of, um, environmental cues, to create um, a desire to snack outside of those three meals. And we have a lot of products that are very highly palatable 
uh, and help us want to snack more. And eating is fun. You know, eating's fun. Yeah, like yeah. I think about eating all the time. I I snack all the time. You know, I, I um. I'm glad you're not the only one. <laughs> no, no, I'm bored. You know, it's interesting. I, I can get up from my desk. I can bring it back to my desk. So yeah. I already, I I already had a much more fluid meal pattern than existed previously. I'm that's not the best thing. I mean, maybe a little right. hit of food from time to time and drink is not good, but it, it is not good for our physiology to be constantly grazing. Um, mm, if you yeah. put a cow uh, uh, in a barn in, and and put it in put food in front of it, that that cow will eat all the time. And we are yeah. animals like that. And so and that's not the best for our, our health. And so um, in some ways the structure of meals helps contain our eating, um, helps yeah. us control our eating. And that's one of the, the things that's uh, problematic today is this landscape of eating is so wide open and so available to people. And we have very, very few rules about how to uh, structure and bind our eating. And that creates a lot of anxiety. And so what we have today is this landscape of food with these crazy food rules that are what vary so widely from people to people. And it's a way to, to curate people's eating. I'll give you some examples. So some people mm. say, I only eat like the cavemen ate back then. Yeah. I only drink my food. I don't eat foods that are white. Uh, I don't eat gluten. I'm not sure what gluten is, but I know it's bad and I don't eat it. Um, everyone's allergic to it. Exactly. <laughs> At some point, everyone is allergic to it. It's crazy. Exactly. And and these may all be legitimate, but but the, but what they all also are are ways to control for people to try to control their eating, and that I'm very sympathetic to. I mean, the result is this cacophonous, uh, <laughs> just crazy array of everything from like I only eat meat to I do not eat meat to I don't eat food, I only drink it. You know, like just just crazy food rules. And I think that's only possible in a country like the United States mm. that we have so much food available all the time for most people um, and very few rules around which to control it. Now, some people may say that, okay, getting rid of three meals is fine. I don't need three meals. I just need one big meal. Uh, and then I, I can just snack a couple times after that. And and, and if that works for you, I think, you know, fine. I, I don't think there's a, re a reason we need three meals a day, although there are social aspects to it and communal aspects to it that I think are important. I mean, ultimately, food should be shared and it should be um, there, there's a, a word called, called commensality. And that is like the, the conviviality and community and culture that is shared through a meal, through food and drink. And if we're just eating by ourselves at our desks all the time, we're really missing out on very, very important parts of food and meals. It seems like, um, yeah, I, I, I definitely see that, especially, again, as, as someone who I guess is vegan or, or plant-based uh, in my diet, I can, like, it really makes you appreciate. So my wife is not, and we have two children, and we're not really particularly raising mm -hmm. them in a, a plant-based sort of way. So I'm eating meals that they're not eating. Mm -hmm. They're eating meals that I'm not eating. Mm -hmm. But I guess it also goes to just the, per I mean, like you said, we can only really do this sort of customized diet thing. 
in a country like the US, I mean, we're customizing a lot of stuff that we do. Yeah. So it's not uncommon that I'm watching different shows than my yeah. wife is and my son is because he has his tablet now and mm-hmm. we have a TV where we used to, it yeah. would have used to have been that, well, we have one TV, yeah. we're going to huddle around it. Mm-hmm. So I guess it's kind of the same with diets, <laughs> but it, it does bring up that interesting dilemma of like how much of this should be shared right. and how much of this should be uh, individualized. Right. It's a good, you know, I know that, good, bad problem. Right. Now, yeah, now I long yeah. for the days when we all watch the same, same show around same show. a television. I, I bet though, if we had the return of those days, it would get, you would start to miss the individualization. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Of it. Yep. yep. <laughs> it's a push and pull. Yep. And I think probably with food as well. I, mm-hmm. I don't know if you, you're familiar with the economist, Tyler Cowen, but he did a book um, on, I, I forget what the book was called, but it was uh, basically an economics of food. Mm. And um, he had mentioned that, I I think he was alluding to studies that had been done by others. Really, when people go on diets and they lose weight and they attribute it to the diet, it's usually just the fact that they restricted what they ate. Mm -hmm. So his point is you can restrict what you eat in all sorts of ways. The keto diet works because it's a restriction on what you eat, not because the diet itself somehow fits. Um, because I, I think he went through all sorts of diets and said that there's really no appreciable difference on how people lose weight. People lose weight when they turn vegan. People lose weight mm-hmm. when they go keto. People lose mm-hmm. weight when they go paleo. Mm-hmm. Um, that wouldn't be true if one of these diets were the correct. I think that's essentially diet. true. I mean, that's the calories in, calories out theory of food intake. And 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 while on the whole, yes, that is true. We are finding that our body reacts differently to say straight glucose, for instance, and mm. uh, uh, carbohydrates that have a lot of fiber in them. Like those mm. do make a difference. And um, the straight glucose does prime our bodies to become um, more um, pre-diabetic, you know, like have mm, yeah. re- resulting conditions that are not healthy. And so all, right. all calories are not equal. Although I, I agree with that premise in general. Right. Well, so even when you go vegan, there's, um, you know, one of the things I, I did was I used a calorie counting, um, nutritional mm-hmm. counting uh, software or app to make sure that I was mm-hmm. getting a certain amount of protein because you're always mm-hmm. advised mm-hmm. that, you know, going plant-based is great, okay. but you have to be creative in how you get your protein. Okay. And if you just drop your protein right. or don't take account of it, um, you're either going to overeat because pro- you're not getting the, the filling yeah. calories of the protein or uh, you're just going to drop your protein, which over time is not very sustainable. Yeah. Yep. But then again, you'd be surprised at how many things give you protein. Yes. Um, and I think this actually kind of leads us to your book, Inventing Baby Food. And the reason I think it does is because one of the ways to get protein is in some fruits and vegetables. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> and part of your book goes through the idea that baby food would not have maybe taken off the way it did if it didn't coincide with the recognition in the early 19, in the early 20th century, if I recall that, Hey, fruits and vegetables, they actually, they're actually, you know, something we should have in our diets. It, <laughs> yeah. I, I just blew, it just blew me away that that wasn't always already established, but it wasn't. Yeah. No, it wasn't. Uh, it wasn't. So, yeah. So why don't we go into kind of the, the overview elevator pitch story of what inventing baby food is, and then we'll get into some of the details. Sure. So the book uh, details the invention and commercialization of this category called baby food and how it tells the story for the larger um, industrialization of our food supply 
and how ideas about baby food, about how to feed babies, about what it means to be a good mother actually change as ideas about food, nutrition, and health change from the late 19th century to the present day. And so baby food is a case study for uh, understanding the changes in the food supply in general in the United States primarily. Yeah. I love histories like this one. I, I think one of the reasons I was so taken by the book is that you're showing, uh, you know, a, a certain kind of history takes something that we see as normal, mm -hmm, natural, mm -hmm, obvious. Mm -hmm. This is just the way it is mm -hmm. and tells you that there's actually a lot of historically mm -hmm. contingent factors mm -hmm. that, that came into this. So maybe one of the ways to, to, uh, tell guests about the origins of baby food is I was taking note of the number of factors that really aligned to create almost the perfect mm -hmm. storm, mm -hmm. if you will, mm -hmm. for the explosion of baby food. So I want to go over some of these and maybe have you elaborate sure. on them. Okay. So first of all is the fact that uh, we can can food. We've mm -hmm. developed the technology to can food and, and distribute it at scale. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. So it seemed like that was a pretty necessary. Yes feature. Um, how long before the invention of baby food were, were other foods being canned? Was this already a routine practice? Uh, well, the, the famous story is that um, in 1803, Napoleon and in France had perfected a technology of canning food, um, primarily for the military, for all of their military exploits, but they hadn't invented the can opener. So they... <laughs> oh. Mm. So they with your teeth, <laughs> with your teeth. So there was a gap there for a while, um, and of course, like trying to get it right so that food wouldn't spoil and that the technology was reliant. You know, took a while. So it starts with Ernest in the early 1800s. By the mm, the fourth quarter, the you know 1870s or so, you're really starting to get a perfected technology for canning and opening the cans that becomes more reliable. And so food starts to be canned in the late 1800s, but it's primarily, um, and, and fruits and vegetables are canned, but they primarily are sold in apothecaries. They're seen as mm. prescriptions. They're seen as, mm. um, you know, they're more expensive. The, the technology isn't widely available to everybody, but it's definitely got potential and people are understanding the value. I mean, people are already preserving food. We, we've always preserved food, but we've just done it in different ways. We've dried it, um, smoked salted. it, yeah. exactly, salted it. Um, there was rudimentary canning, home canning going on, and it was happening industrially as well. When you get to the 1880s and 90s, it starts to uh, be expanded and scaled up and becomes more available. So this is, is one of the ingredients of the perfect storm that leads to um, baby food. And fruits and vegetables, if I, I can go on or you can... Oh, yeah. No, that, that, that was actually one of the ones <clears throat> I was going to bring okay. up is fruits and vegetables, yeah. which, again, just shocked me because <laughs> we, th we think of it as so normal and obvious. Yeah. Yeah. So, the, you know, the first foods that were canned was meat, you know, preserving meat, making it available for uh, people... Um, you know, some other items, well, they're experimenting, they're trying to can everything, and they are trying to can fruits and vegetables. Fruits and vegetables are considered important, but uh, nice, but not necessarily. 
Um, they have okay. some food yeah. value. They go with meat. Meats and grains are seen as the primary strength-producing foods, health-producing foods, um, foods that are emphasized. And fruits and vegetables are, are accompaniments, but in, even have a long history mm. of being um, regarded with suspicion. And so a lot of childcare manuals and home manuals in the late 1800s would say, don't feed your child fruits and vegetables until they're two years of age, until they're weaned, um, which is very long for us today. And that was because there was a long history of um, Galenic theory um, that that saw vegetables as cold and um, wet um, and could cause harm to the body. And if you think about it, fruits and vegetables have a laxative effect and mm, yeah. you don't want babies to get diarrhea. It was not quite clear, you know, where these terrible t- diseases of cholera and dysentery came from. Mm. And, you know, um, it could have been water. It could have been food. It's something in the food. And anything with a laxative effect was seen as suspicious and, and dangerous, potentially dangerous. So vegetables, which could have a laxative effect, their fiber and other, other elements were seen as, as best to wait. Um, but in the early 20th century, in the early 1900s, scientists in, in that were now in the chemical s- stage of science and, and chemistry are beginning to isolate elements in food. And mm-hmm. it's always known that there were substances in food, salts or um, early ideas about protein. But when they really get the, understand the chemical properties of food, they begin to realize that fruits and vegetables have these food values called vitamins, uh, vita being life in Latin, you know, amines that are, you know, like a salt based chemical thing. And so it's all of a sudden the the ideas of fruits and vegetables changes dramatically instead of being mm, possibly suspicious and maybe okay. Um, they begin to be important. Wow. They have these things in them that are really important to your body. And so, um, then giving children fruits and vegetables begins to be reevaluated. Well, maybe if they're good for adults, they're probably good for children too. And maybe we mm. should be feeding them to children at better uh, at earlier ages. And of course, better understanding of disease and bacteria and um, the, the origins of diseases contributes to that too, because people realize that fruits and vegetables in themselves aren't dangerous. It's probably the germs up on them or the dirty water, et cetera. Yeah. So that's happening at the same time that canning is really getting going. And there's more widespread canning of fruits and vegetables in general. And so you... Although, although Spam was invented much later. <laughs> spam is... Spam a lot later. Spam is a lot later. Spam is one of those food of, uh, items that you could, you could wish had never been invented, but actually has a very important cultural history. <laughs> Has there, I'm I'm wondering has there have there been histories of spam? Oh yeah, oh yeah, definitely. It's a All really right, gonna, interesting food substance. I'm going to go to Google Scholar yeah. right after this <laughs> is over. It's and you also mentioned, I guess, in relation to the, the discovery of fruits and vegetables and vitamins, um, which of course became mm-hmm. vitamins. Um, you mentioned that people at this point still didn't really know how to prepare fruits and vegetables at home. It was a pretty laborious Mm. process to steam them. And I guess people thought that you really had to really boil them Mm -hmm. and steam them. Mm -hmm. Very arduous process in a world that wasn't as automated uh, as ours. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And I believe, if I remember right, uh, the Gerber, the founding myth of, of the Gerber foods. Can you go over, do you remember the, uh, do you recall the, 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 the founding myth sure. of, of what that was? So there was a, a family in Michigan that were um, canning fruits and vegetables. And actually a, a lot of um, Midwest, upper New England, um, fruit orchards, farms, ha, uh, can canning facilities moved in. The first baby food, quote unquote, was actually made in um, Rochester, New York. But the Gerber family in Michigan uh, were canning fruits and vegetables. And there's a myth that goes along with the story of inventing Gerber baby food, which may or may not be true. It probably has some basis in fact, and that um, in this early 20th century period, the early 1920s, um, Dorothy Gerber, the mother, is trying to feed her baby diligently. And there are new rules about feeding one's baby. And now there's this idea that, oh, babies should have fruits and vegetables, but that they should be mashed up very finely and they should be pureed. And this is the era of sanitation and hypervigilance about cleanliness and um, uh, sterilization. And so there were very yeah. strict rules about how you should prepare one's baby food and um, sterilizing bottles and sterilizing the food. So she's pureeing and chopping and getting very frustrated. <laughs> and she says to her husband, hey, you make you can fruits and vegetables. Why don't you make a baby food so I don't have to do this and be grumpy about it, you know? So uh, Mr. Gerber says, well, sure, I'll do that. Let's do that. And so they start um, pureeing the fruits and vegetables before canning them and creating this infant, this food item that's appropriate for babies. I need to back up for a, min for a minute yep. to say that in the 19th century, there wasn't a, a thing called baby food, but there was a category of soft, bland foods that were appropriate and seen as important yeah. for younger children, old, the elderly, and invalids. And so yeah. these three categories were mushed together to, to serve, uh, to be conserved mush, um, that it would be softer, gentler foods, easier on their stomachs, easier to chew or not even having to chew. And so there would, you would have recipes in these home, um, home manuals about how to prepare mostly beef gruel and wheat, um, wheat mm. cereals, but vegetables it sounds appetizing. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. So vegetables became more of that. And, um, and it really wasn't until the 1920s, the 1920s and thirties when, um, fruit produce manufacturers started producing foods in jars or cans in the beginning, and then advertising them as foods for infants. And so that becomes baby food. That becomes a category then that is isolated from foods for invalids, foods for the elderly. And it is primarily advertised to parents, primarily mothers, as food for babies. Yeah. Well, you just mentioned the next factor that I was, I was going to talk about, which is advertising. Mm -hmm. it's, it really seems like without the proliferation of like magazines geared towards women uh, and that and and just the advertising industry in general, uh, baby food may have been invented as a category, but would it have taken off as rapidly as it did? Absolutely, yes. You have advertising in um, ladies' magazines, uh, in um, nutrition professional journals, the American Medical Association Journal, uh, advertising geared to doctors and nurses and dietitians. 
here's this food that's perfect for your patient. Um, here are some free samples. We'll give you free samples. They're they're right offering those to mothers as well. Um, also, the rise of uh, medical subprofessions in this period is really important too. So instead of the generic family doctor, you have the rise of OBGYNs and pediatricians. And so pediatricians begin to take over more and more of the duties of like, well, we know what's best for your child. We know the scientific evidence and proof. And so we're going to oversee the, the, um, the weaning of your infant and the introduction of solid foods. And so this yeah. gets woven into the story as well. But advertising is no question, just huge, huge. And then the, the message that, is, that the baby food manufacturers are sending to their um, the readers are, well, you don't want to be tired. You don't want to be haggard making baby yeah. food in your kitchen. Be free, be independent, buy this baby food. And we can produce it better than you can make it yourself. We can make it more sterile, more um, nutritious than you could be making it yourself. So all of these messages are being imbued into baby food advertising. Yeah. Um, you, you also mentioned there was direct advertising. So that, like they would send samples mm -hmm, mm -hmm. to not only to give to doctors, to give to, to their, their female patients, but also, uh, when you had a child, they would, you know, some, maybe a, a can of Gerber's would, or a can of beet, yeah. uh, what a beech nut would show up at your door. How did they, I, I don't think you went over this in the book. I'm not sure. How, how would they have known mm. when that was? Mm -hmm. how, how would they have known when to, to send you? Uh, well, they, they, you know, all births would be um, printed in the newspapers. Oh, okay. And so they would okay. get those. Makes sense. Um, they also yeah. had a field of baby food sales representatives who would go in to grocery stores and set up baby food displays would have mm. special days of giveaways um, would um, you know, go in just as, as sales reps do today to make sales um, to give free samples away. And so they were uh, propagating the items um, that way. But then yeah. also, you know, there's a long history of, you know, you're, you are in the hospital and you get a couple cases of infant formula as well as solid food to take home with you, a swag bag, as it were, um, mm, yeah. that, that began later was criticized for, um, you know, decreasing uh, breastfeeding rates. Well, and you just segued also <laughs> into another, another one, mm. another factor, which I don't think many people would foresee, although when you hear it, it is actually pretty obvious, the sexualization of female breasts. Mm. Right is is another factor that, if I understand right, it really kind of pushed the idea uh, that you shouldn't really breastfeed so long. Yeah, the 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 breastfeeding rates dropped dramatically in the early twentieth century, hmm. and this was always of interest to me when I was writing this book. And a lot of scholarship had been done about the transition from breastfeeding to infant formula. So manufactured infant formula. There was a lot of really good evidence that showed as breastfeeding declines, uh, the rate of infant formula increases in part because infant formula becomes more safer and reliable and, yep. um, you know, children survive on it. And it seems as good, if not better than breast milk. And, um, and so, the, the the relative you know the relative safety of it increases its use but what i found in my book is that that's 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 
part of the story, but it's not the entire story. And yeah. one part of the story is the sexualization of the breast. I mean, the breasts have always been sexual, but so yeah. have legs and arms. In the Victorian era, you didn't want to, you know, you weren't supposed well, we to. We don't give up walking. Right? <laughs> give up walking. You weren't supposed to show any part of your body, that a, a woman, a, a, a respectable woman, because that was seen as risque. And, and if you think about World War II, pinup girls, the posters that the GIs would would um, pin up in their barracks, it was all about mm. the leg. I mean, there was some breast as well, mm. but legs were the, the sexual focal point in, say, the yeah. early 20th century. But with the Marilyn Monroe era, um, the buxom blondes, this moves squarely to the breast and there becomes more re- revealing uh, advertising and public images of women's breasts. And that increases the sexualization of the breast, which decreases its function as a mammary gland and, you know, creates this tension between the breast as a sexual organ versus a functional organ. So that doesn't do much to encourage breastfeeding rates in the last half of the 20th century. And then the other part of the story is just the increasing material volume of baby food. So baby food is invented in the late 1920s by Gerber and others. It, it, it continues to increase in sales and volume it, through the 1930s, the Depression, through World War II, goes gangbusters in the 50s and 60s. It is a product that is both foisted on the public by the yeah. manufacturers, but it also is received very well by the public. The public well, then there's a, Yeah, and then there's a network effect. When you see everyone else mm-hmm, using mm-hmm. baby food, you would start to feel like there's something off if I'm not using baby food. Right. It becomes like if everyone else is doing yep, this. Yep. It's embedded in the culture. Wow. Everyone's feeding their baby formula and everybody's using baby food. I want my baby to be as good as everybody else's. So I'm going to do the same thing. Uh, and this increase and the baby food is used more and it's introduced at earlier and earlier ages. So by the 1950s, 1960s, the average age of introducing baby food to an infant is one month of age after birth. And sometimes it's before that, which if yeah. you're a parent or if you're knowledgeable about these things, that's very, very, very early. Yeah. early. And their their physiology is not designed to um, function, re- uh, digest f- solid food uh, yet. But um, so, that, so that earlier introduction of baby food also functions to displace breastfeeding. So it's not just... Inf- formula, it's the introduction of solid food that is creating the dramatic drop in in breastfeeding. Of course, that story changes in the late 20th century. You have those rates going up as people realize, wow, there's probably um, nature after, you know, millennia of trials and errors probably, you know, got it right. And boy, that there, it, it is good and probably better than artificial formula and, you know, or at least as good. And so anyway, they begin to reevaluate those ideas about the, um, the science science and its ability to create a better product than nature can. Yeah. Yeah. And and that brings us to kind of the late Mm sixties and seventies. Another, again, what fascinates me about the book is that, you know, I've, I've done kind of my own readings on the history of childhood and the history of schooling and how those things developed and the history of baby food just seems to mirror a lot of those Mm -hmm. trends. So in the early 20th century, up until the fifties, you had this kind of idea of what you could call scientific management. Mm-hmm. You alluded to it earlier. The pediatrician started saying, we know best. Mm-hmm. We know better than kind of mother's instincts on what to do. So we're going to give you this advice and everyone kind of took it. But then that breeds kind of a dissatisfaction. It alienates you from 
yourself and your child and, and people started to, I guess there was kind of an anti-authoritarian mm-hmm. impulse in the 60s mm-hmm. and 70s mm-hmm. to say, wait a minute, no, we can actually think for ourselves. Mm-hmm. We can actually kind of listen to our intuitions. And that seemed to have led to a, a new type of thought about baby food that was maybe more critical and skeptical. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's the result of what's called in the 70s natural motherhood, this idea of, well, mothers, they have this intuition, they have this knowledge, they, um, you know, the Dr. Spock um, adage of trust yourself, um, you know your child. So taking more control um, individually and feeling more entitled to have that control over decision making. But it's also part of this post um, 1960s, post Watergate Vietnam War um, distrust of authority, of feeling like, you know, um, wow, we trusted our leaders for so long and, and they've betrayed us. And the rise of the consumer movement, so Ralph Nader and others who are showing that that industry is not manufacturing products um, as safely and uh, carefully as they should. And so all of that distrust of authority, um, feeling of betrayal and um, uh, entitlement to reclaim some of that space is, is creating this moment where um, baby food is forced to change. Consumers are forcing it to change, to become less full of sugar and salt and additives. Um, and also more women are saying, well, maybe I'll just make my own baby food. That's what I did, what people did before. And I can do that. And um, it might even be better. And I might gain some satisfaction with making it. Uh, I might uh, enjoy that. That might feel like I can be, can be a quote unquote better mother. Of course, that has a downside because, um, you know, (laughs) not all women can do that or not all women want to do that. And so, um, you know, we get into this period of um, reevaluating the, the importance and primacy of commercial baby food. Yeah, it's almost like the, this push and pull between liberation by technology and dependence mm-hmm. on technology. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you liberate yourself too much with technology outsourcing mm-hmm. the baby food creation to companies, it's liberating in one way. But then you maybe start to realize, well, I'm actually really dependent yeah. on that. Mm-hmm. sort of thing. And I mean, didn't Gerber, wasn't it in the eighties? It was when I was a young kid had a big controversy of glass. I think it was found in some of their, their, their yeah, there were per- periodically scares, you know, like any, ma- any manuf- manufactured product is going to come into inter- imperfections. And so, sure. you know, from time to time they would find glass shards in baby food or the, the famous apple juice scandal that, it was being produced in, um, you know, subpar standard or had a, a, a LR, I'm trying to think that a, a, a fertilizer in it from um, mm. production. And so there were periodically these stories or actual cases of manufactured goods being produced um, in an inferior or dangerous way. And that happens in baby food. It happens in other products. So um, that's a common thing. I, I also, I want to, I don't, you know, I'm looking at the time, but I also want to point out too, that this is not an anti-commercial baby food book. Um, because right. one thing that's really important to understand is the, the, um, that it was a product of convenience and it is a product that allowed women to have more mobility. So, yep. um, 
you know, it doesn't take that long to make baby food, but it does take time. And if you add it to all of your other tasks, it's one more thing to do. And convenience products do just that. They allow convenience. They allow mobility. They allow uh, a, a woman primarily, but men also, to go out and have picnics in the park and take some baby food with you. Or even you could argue that it allows, it makes it easier for women to go and work outside of the home in paid labor, whether they wanted to or not. Um, and a lot wanted to in the late 70s and beyond and, and, and even before. And so it does allow a flexibility and a, um, a, an independence. Um, and, and Americans value that and a mobility. We value, we value those, those attributes and baby food provides some of that. Sure. It, it's, um, it's actually a, a personal connection for me because I, my family has a foster child at home right now, um, infant going on toddler, and we got the child when, when uh, the child was pretty young. And it dawned on me that I was able to form more of a connection with the foster child than I thought, mm -hmm. because, you know, a lot of literature says, mm -hmm. you know, biological children, you form more connection. Mm -hmm. And I think part of the reason was because, um, because this was a foster child, I could feed the child, yes. right? So I could, I could feed the child with formula. Mm -hmm. um, so not quite baby food, but yeah. yeah, it was, it allowed me, the, the male mm -hmm. to be able to kind of take a more of an active okay. feeding role. That's a that's a really important point, and it's a point. Think about it for um, same-sex families and parents yeah. of with with uh, two male parents. You know that their parents as well. They feed their children. They form these bonds, and so um, you know having this exclusive focus on breastfeeding, um, you know, needs to be complicated. Yeah. So what? What if there's a if there's a message that you want people to take away from the book and maybe listening to to this, what would it be either about baby food or food in general? Uh, hmm. You know, when I give talks and uh, talk to groups, what people really want to talk about is what should I feed my baby now? <laughs> <laughs> you know, my my book is a history of it, but really the questions is, but what should I feed my baby? And what I say is that, well, look at the history and the history shows us that ideas about what to feed your child, when, in what quantities, to what effect shifts as, um, as ideas about science change, as ideas about child rearing change, as ma uh, manufactured products appear and, um, and so therefore, it's a it's a it's not a fixed thing. There's not a one um, one solid answer to that because probably things will change in the future. We'll probably have new scientific understanding. We'll probably have a different social situation that requires different feeding um, rules. As we are as we discussed earlier today, that is we're experiencing some of that now. But what what there's a couple of constants, and one constant is. If you provide a child adequate food, warmth, nurturing, love, that child's going to do okay. That uh, yeah. if you're being a conscientious parent, conscientious parent and providing her those things. I'm a child of the '60s. I was formula-fed and fed Gerber baby food from very early age, and I'm okay. I, my brain is functioning. I'm not, you know, it's 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 not a make-or-break thing. However. Um, 
science does evolve. Ideas about health and wellness do evolve. And some of them are better now than they were in the 60s or earlier in, say, the 19th century when you were, uh, the advice was not to give your child fruits and vegetables until after the age of two. So like we could say there's progress. And so um, I would say two things. Listen to the latest ideas about infant food, but also take them with a grain of salt and realize that you have to, um, given the change in history over time, you have to adapt them to your lifestyle. You have to understand your family. You have to, um, you might want to incorporate historical heritage foods into your child's diet. You might, mm-hmm. if you have a Korean background, you might you might want to give them little tastes of kimchi. There's no reason why you can't. If you have a, a, a Hispanic Latinx background, and beans and rice are very solid staples in your diet, why not give your child first foods of refried beans? You know, so there's a lot of ways to feed your child nourishing, healthy food that also incorporates aspects of culture and fit into your lifestyle. If you want to make your own baby food, go for it. If that's not important to you, there's good commercial baby foods that are out there available and you spend your time doing other things for your child. So I, my goal is to like get parents to relax about what is an important issue. You know, like the, the moment of we, the child's moving from solid liquids to solids is a pretty profound moment, but um, that can be done a lot of different ways. Yeah. Yeah, I, my own research in into the history of childhood, the history of child rearing, the history of schools, um, is almost that it, it just really seems like uh, children especially are this sort of Rorschach test mm-hmm. where we project all of our of the spirit of the times onto the kids, yeah. right? So in the early 1900s to the 1950s, it was all about like the you know scientific management, home economics. Mm-hmm. So we deferred to the experts mm-hmm. because that's what you did. In the 60s and 70s, kids were a way to take back control. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's just we project attitudes um, yeah. on the kids. That's why I love histories like yours, because they allow us to realize how fluid and mm-hmm. kind of contingent a lot of the, the things that we now think are natural mm-hmm. yep. uh, really are. So I, I really enjoyed talking to you today. This was uh, very fascinating, and I hope that people pick up some of your work. Oh, this has been fun. I really appreciate the conversation. Thank you so much for inviting me.